Psalm 32 and verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah, there's three of those here in the psalm, and David is encouraging you and I to pause and to ponder, to meditate upon what has just been said. And some have treated it as a musical rest, and I do believe that these verses are verses that should be meditated upon. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. You'll never get victory over a sin that you will not agree with God about. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee. And so if you are hardened in your heart and you are hiding your sin, then you really are not living in a godly way. If you are confessing your sin and forsaking your sin, and the period between the time when you commit it and confess it is growing shorter and shorter, then God is developing you in godliness in your life. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Psalm 32, 7. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And here is another Selah. The Bible said, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go, I will guide thee with mine eye. It wouldn't be a bad idea to look at this verse in your prayer time and say, God, I need you to instruct me today. I need you to teach me today. I need you to guide me today. And then he said in verse 9, Be you not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding? whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You may be seated. We've been looking at this particular psalm under the idea of when sorrow turns to joy. I divided it up into five sections. Thus far, I've dealt with the consciousness of sins forgiven and the conviction of sin and how it's described. We are at verse number five where David is dealing with how his confession of sin is disclosed here in the Bible. Now in our day, sadly, the definition of sin and 
the description of sin and the Bible idea of sin is something that has long fallen into misuse in modern churches. Many who call themselves preachers have turned into motivational speakers or into the motivational speaking circuit and so they're not willing really to deal with the idea that you and I have some things that are wrong with us. We have things that come into our life that we allow the gate of our heart to open and we make certain decisions in life that become bad decisions and we make choices about moral issues and others and these things must be addressed from the Bible. And so David is dealing with his confession of sin and how it's disclosed here. Listen carefully. We can never expect the joy of sins forgiven as long as the task of confession is incomplete. Every one of us fail the Lord. All of us need to admit that we have sinned against God. And not only that, we need to admit it specifically in the areas where we have failed. If we have failed each other, we should confess our sins to God and seek God for his forgiveness. But the way sin is dealt with determines whether or not you are growing in godliness or whether or not you're allowing your carnal propensities to rule your life. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Here's a man that recognized 20 years after he had been saved. The book of Romans declares in Romans chapter 7, Paul said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He talked about the battle that he went through. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. I find another law warring in my members, bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin and death, which is in my members. And so you and I have to deal with this matter of sin in our lives. There's no such thing as saying, well, I don't really sin. No, you lie about other things as well. And some people have decided to compromise with sin. God's preachers and God's men cannot back up and let up and give up in relationship to fighting sin. There can be no revival until sin is dealt with. Some compromise with it. It really doesn't matter who is involved. What matters is what is right or what is wrong, not who is involved. And so you and I as believers cannot compromise with sin. And some coddle sin. In fact, a lot of us don't think our sin is really all that bad. And Jesus dealt with this in Matthew chapter 7 in relationship to true and righteous and scriptural judgment. A lot of us, sadly, have a way of examining each other, and yet we don't examine ourselves in the right way. The scripture said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 3, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? How is it? that we look at someone else. We scrutinize their life all the while ignoring what may be wrong with us. He has what we might say is a, a toothpick and we have what is a beam coming out of our own eye. The scripture said, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the moat out of thine eye and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. In verse five, thou hypocrite, 
First cast out the beam out of thine own eye and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. And so we must be cautious about trying to scrutinize the lives of others. Some compromise with sin and some coddle it. In fact, they don't want ever sin to be dealt with. If you had a deadly disease that was very much treatable, would you want the doctor to tell you you had a cold and send you home with a vitamin regimen? No, you'd want the doctor to tell you what was wrong with you. And some compromise, some call it, but few call it what it is. And everybody that attends to be godly must be willing to deal with their own sin and confess it before God. And so the Bible said for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee. And so a key feature of being godly is a person that is willing to deal with sin in their own life. It's not a person that's dealing with everybody else's sin, but they're dealing with their own sin. And the Bible gives us here the features of it. In verses three and four, a godly person is convicted about their own sin. A godly person is well aware of their failures before God. I want to say tonight that you and I are dealt with by the Holy Ghost at the very moment that we sin against God. A godly person verses five and six confesses their sin and a godly person in verse eight and nine continually submits to God. And so David deals with the confession of his sin and how it is disclosed. First of all, David approaches God about his sin and he tells us that the pathway of blessedness is when you and I are willing to approach God about our sin and you can study the lives of contrast in the Bible. You can study Saul and David. And when Saul was approached by Samuel, he said, yea, he said, blessed be thou of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And yet the sheep were bleeding and the ox were lowing. And Samuel said, what meaneth this? He said, if you've obeyed God, why are these things so in your life? And yet when God sent Nathan to David's palace, David never made one excuse about his sin. He didn't argue with God's man. He didn't reproach him. No, what did he do? He confessed his sin and he got right with God. Saul all the while trying to blame someone else about his sin, but David owned his sin. And sin is never dealt with right until you and I bring it into the presence of God. Until you and I become honest and say, Lord, it's me. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so we bring it into God's presence and we deal with it honestly. And no confession will be made until we agree with God about our sin. That is, we've got to agree with God about our sin and approach him for forgiveness. David not only approached God about his sin, he acknowledged it in verse five. In verse five, I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. And so David, first of all, acknowledged his sin. He admitted it before God. He was not living in denial. He was not challenging Nathan. He did not say, Nathan, that's not right. That's not what I did. Oh, David owned it before God. And this implied a consciousness of guilt 
or to own it as one's failure. Notice here in Psalm 32 and verse 5, he said, I acknowledge my sin. He didn't say, well, it's not near as bad as what some of these servants here in the courts are doing. It's not near as bad as what another man I heard about before me that did a whole lot worse than I did. My sin's not all that bad. No. David said, Lord, it's mine. He said, it's my sin. He said, it's my transgression. He said in verse 5, it's my sin. And he said, God, he said, when I owned it, then you forgave it. When I confessed it, you forgave it. And David ceased to cover his sin and began to confess it before God. Now David not only approached God and he acknowledged his sin, but David agreed with God about his sin. And it's not that people don't see that they sin. They do see they sin. But they've got to agree with God about sin. David agreed with God. He said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And that is you and I need to agree about the fact of it. You know, is it right or is it wrong? That's the question. Not whether or not you agree or disagree. Is it right or is it wrong? You and I need to come to the fact of it. That is, is it right or is it wrong? No, it's wrong. If you did that which is wrong, then confess that to God. If it's wrong, confess it. And then David agreed about the failure of it. And he said, God, this sin is against you. First of all, in Psalm 51, though it's sin against Bathsheba, though it's sin against his own wives, and that's awkward even to say it like that, though it's sin against Uriah. He said against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Oh, David said, God, it's wrong, first of all, in your sight. Before it affects anybody else, it's wrong in your sight. And the sin, my friend, is wrong in God's sight. When I started teaching Sunday school years ago, I guess it was 1984, there was a little kid's class that was next to mine, and I taught the junior boys, 10, 11, and 12, and the little kids would sing a little song. He went like this. I hate sin. I hate it bad. I hate sin. It makes me mad. It's mean and it's wicked. When it comes along, I'll kick it. I hate sin because I love God. And the Sunday school teacher would have the little kids singing. I hate sin. I hate it bad. I hate sin. It makes me mad. It's mean. It's wicked. When it comes along, I'll kick it. I hate sin because I love God. And listen now, Confession indicates that we look at sin from God's viewpoint. It's the fact that God hates sin. And God said it's wrong. And confession means to agree with God that what we've done is inexcusable. Listen, you say, preacher, you don't know what they did to me. Listen, what they did to you is not anywhere near as bad as the things we committed against God. And so in the New Testament, to confess means to say the same thing about it before God. In our society, we live in such a darkened world that nowadays sin is not treated as a sin against God. This week, I saw where they had a prayer breakfast over there, I guess over in Washington, and one of the Republican representatives made a little joke about the fact that she was shacked up with her fiancé 
that they were in bed and she said, no, 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 honey. He said, I, I've got to get to the prayer breakfast. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Listen, if you're living together out of wedlock, it's wrong before God. Listen, there's no excuse for somebody that is shacking up. It doesn't matter to me if they're the leadership of the Republican Party. If you are shacked up and living together and sleeping together outside the marriage bond, God calls it fornication. It's a sin before God. There's no justification for it and there's no approval for it in the courtroom of God and in the presence of his word. And so you and I cannot get right with the Lord until we say the same thing about our sin that God does. You and I cannot come clean with God until we say, God, this is the problem. This is what I've done. And this is wrong before you. I want to acknowledge it. I want to confess it. And the Bible teaches us that David confessed it entirely before God. He confessed his sin personally. In verse number five, I acknowledge my sin have I not hid? I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He confessed his sin personally. He confessed his sin speedily. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. He dealt with his sin completely. I'm glad that he did. He said, surely in the flood of great waters, there may be a time when God leaves the attribute of mercy and the exercise of his mercy and begins the chastening hand. He can even bring that to your life in such a way that you'll die a premature death. It's my friend a serious thing to strive with God. The Bible said in 1 John 5 there is a sin and a death and I do not say that he shall pray for it. Oh God help us to live clean and confess our sins unto the Lord. Now, not only does David in this section approach God, he acknowledges his sin, he agrees with God. Then in verse seven, a very refreshing reminder that David now affirms he is God. He affirms his relationship. Now, here's what happens. When sin comes between you and God, everything becomes blurry. Everything becomes blurry. And, uh, you know, the church really is not really what it used to be when your vision is blurred. I remember I was dealing with someone years ago and this person would not be honest about themselves. They were always blaming someone else for their sin and their sin problem. They would not be honest, first of all, with themselves. You cannot get right with God until you get honest about yourself. They would not be honest. And I remember as I sat with them, my wife and I did, and I, I realized the more I talked to them, the more the problem was not in them, it was everybody else. Everybody else was a problem. Oh, you know what this person did. You know what this person did. Even another person had tried to deal with this person and, and it tried to get them back in the church faithfully. Things at the church are just not right and, and this is not right and that is not right. And, and I guess the whole church was gonna have to be turned upside down down for this one individual. All the others are coming. All the others are faithful. But the person is uh, somehow mounted a high horse uh, and said, well, you know, I just, I just can't come over there. Is this the way to deal with your life? Is this the way to address God and the service of him? No, it is not. When you get sin out of your life, though, things become clearer in your life. 
and the vision becomes clearer. David not only confesses his sin, but now he confesses his Savior and the preciousness of his Savior. Three times he says, thou, thou art my hiding place. I'm not hiding my sin, but I'm hiding in you. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Now I was reading a comment by Charles Spurgeon. He said, there's joy all around now. Songs of mercy and the mercy of God is very evident in the life. But thou, now David is referring to who God is. Now, he said, I've got a clear vision of my Savior. Now I can hear his voice. Now I can enjoy his fellowship. Now I can experience his love. Now I can walk in his will. Now I can see his face clearly. Oh, thank God, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now look at it with me for a few moments tonight as we make our way through the passage. He confesses who God is and the care which he exercises on his behalf. First, he said, thou art my hiding place. One writer said it seems to be a reference to the city of refuge. And uh, it certainly is uh, the confession of a sinner who has found shelter in the Savior. Thank God the Bible said for your dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Psalm 119 and verse 114. The Bible said in that text, thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Thou art my hiding place. Isaiah 32 and verse number two. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And listen, Isaiah's man is our man. He's my hiding place, my covert from the storm. He's Isaiah's man. Thank God my redeemer is a hiding place. In Psalm 32, the Savior is my shelter, my city of refuge. Glory to God. I'm glad the Bible said the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. David now confesses his Savior is his shelter. He confesses the Lord Jesus as his shelter. Thou art my hiding place. Secondly, he said, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Not only our shelter, but also our shield. He's our preserver and we are preserved in Christ. The book of Jude testifies to the fact that we are preserved. Christ is the one who is doing the preserving. Second Timothy 4 and verse 18. The scripture said, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those who are kept by the power of God have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. Those who are preserved have a reservation in the glory world with an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. I'm thankful he's my seal. He's the one that is keeping me saved. If I had to keep myself saved, I couldn't keep myself saved one minute. Neither could you. You're not kept by your own power, and I'm not kept by my own power. I'm sealed by the Holy Ghost. I'm hid with Christ in God. Thank God I'm in Christ's hands and in God's hands. Oh, glory to God. I have an earnest called the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee that God will present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I have the earnest of the Holy Ghost. I've been sealed by him until the day of redemption. You say, are you going to heaven? Absolutely so. And when I get there, I'm going to run around and say, glory to God. It's good to be home. Hallelujah. Thank God. He's my shield. The Savior is the one who is my shield. Not only that, the Bible said, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And I'm glad that he is my supplier. Now, not only does he supply my faith, he supplies the forgiveness for my failure. Oh my, somebody ought to say amen right there. He helps me with my faith. And my faith's not always as strong as it needs to be. I need help in the faith department. Amen. I certainly do. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The disciples even said, Lord, increase our faith. I need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, but I'm thankful. Hallelujah. Not only does he supply faith and he helps me in, in forgiving me when I fail him, but he compasses me about with songs of deliverance. Glory to God. One of these days, I'll get to sing in Emmanuel's land. We sang tonight about his goodness, about his greatness. We sang tonight about his glory, how wonderful he is. And one day, hallelujah, I'll get to sing around the throne. I'm not looking to sing a solo. I just want to join the blood-washed choir and sing worthy as the Lamb. And while he compasses me about here, I believe I'll surround the throne with the blood-washed crowd and sing to the glory of the Lamb. Now tonight, you and I have heard already tonight how David has approached God, how he has acknowledged his sin, how he has agreed with God about it, and now how he affirms his God. And so we learn that his Savior will hide him. Jesus will hide you. Jesus will help you. And he's the guaranteed supplier of all the happiness you need and the supplier of all the songs you can sing. Amen. Number four, we hear the clear voice of God. Verse eight and nine. Look down at your Bible. Are you with me now? Say amen. He said, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. As a parent, you have to learn what is called nonverbal skills. My dad was really good at this. He could look at all of us and we would all freeze. He'd turn and look. And if he had that look on his face, I knew I better stop whatever I was doing. And there are even times you can use little signals. I was doing this before service. When our, our kids were small, if we got separated in a crowd, we were at a big meter or something like that, they'd hear me whistle. 
Miss Karen said, are you whistling? I said, I am. I was whistling my granddaughter, been teaching her the same thing. When I whistle, you know what she does? She looks for me. Made a certain sound. She looks around to see where I am. Sometimes we'd be in a crowd and I'd see my kids and they might be near somebody. They don't really need to be near. You don't know that until you travel in and around these crowds sometimes. You think, oh no, they don't need to be near them. Here comes the whistle. And God is able to communicate with you and I. Unless our propensity is to be like the horse or the mule. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. So the obvious contrast between those who can and will be guided by God without bit or bridle or guided by the eye and those who must be held by bit and bridle. But here, the illustrative reference concerning the horse and the mule in this context reveal there are some whom nothing but force will keep them in the right path. And all of us can have horse-like and mule-like tendencies. All of my kids are different. Some of them had stronger wills than others, but the will has to be dealt with. It does, and God has a way for that to take place. Listen, if you're talking to a child and they're acting like you're not even in the room, they don't believe what you're saying. They don't believe what you're saying. If you're saying stop and they're going on like you're not in the room, they don't believe what you're saying. Unless you use what the Bible teaches us. The Bible said the rod and reproof give wisdom, actions and words. My dad was a man of few words. But if he said, I'm going to whip you, I started crying immediately. You know why? It was coming. Listen, he, he didn't say that just to threaten me so I'd settle down. He said that as a guarantee. If we were in the car, when we got home, it happened. Just like he said. He didn't make vain promises. He didn't throw out words. No. He, he said, I'm going to whip you when I get home. And we got to the back bedroom. He took the belt off and we got it done. Just like he said he would. And I promise you, I wasn't looking forward to it. And I didn't want another one anytime soon. David here talks about the horse and the mule. Represents in some sense two tendencies that we have. The horse too sometimes stampede ahead of God. And uh, I remember as a young boy, I was telling my wife we were coming down through these roads the other day together. We were riding together and I was telling her how when it would snow, I had a friend that lived five miles from me and we would meet we would meet halfway. He'd say, meet me at the barn. I knew exactly where that was back in the woods. There was a full-size quarter horse there and a little pony there. And uh, I'm not a horseman. I don't profess to be. And he didn't really profess to be one either. But you know, when boys get together, they can start trying to impress each other. And so I said that day when snow was on the ground and school was out, I said, I'm going to ride that pony. 
He said, no, nah, don't do that. I said, I'm going to. So I, I swung up on that little pony and that pony took me off, carried me under every low-hanging branch out there in the pasture. And I mean, I was down on the main like this right here and I was hanging on for dear life, branches swapping me in the head and everything. Well, when I got back, he didn't want to be bested by that. He said, I'm going to ride that big horse. I said, no, no. I said, I don't think you ought to do that. And he got on that horse. And I, honestly, I stood back. I was scared. I think his pride got involved. His pride and his ego got involved. And as soon as he swung up on that horse, that thing took off. I mean, it took off. It let out, Brother Mark, like it was running the Kentucky Derby. It lapped the pasture. Boy, he was hanging on for dear life. Looked like one of them cowboy movies. I mean, he was, he was hanging on. That thing was running. And about that time, it came right back around where we were. And it made a hard left turn. I mean, it looked like a cartoon. I'm serious. He come off that thing like this with arms stretched out down in the snow and in the mud. And the horse seemed to make another circle and came back by as if to say, na, 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 na. And I honestly, I was doing just like you are right now. I was laughing my head off. I said, I tried to tell you, I tried to tell you not to ride that thing. Not only did it throw you off, it came back around just to let you know it was boss. Stampeded off. Our tendency here, like the horse, to stampede ahead of our Lord and do things we ought not to do. To try to solve our own problems. Try to secure our own needs. Or like the mule. Our tendency sometimes is to lag behind the Lord, not let him lead, not move forward, obey him and walk with him as we should. You and I that are here tonight need to let the Lord guide us. The Bible said in verse eight that he will, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Sheep are able to be guided by an all-seeing shepherd by the sound of his voice, they both hear it and they know it. Yet we need all three of these things. We need to be instructed. We need to be taught. We need to be guided. And we need all three of these daily. God's not looking for you to serve in his kingdom in an advisory capacity. He doesn't need your advice. He already knows what you need to do. What he wants you to do is just listen and learn. In fact, the word instruct means to show or to exhibit, to impress upon the mind. It's visible. If you'll let God instruct you, he'll instruct you daily. He'll teach you things nobody else can teach you and he'll instruct you in a visible way. Secondly, he'll teach you. This is verbal. He'll inform and impart to you the things that you need to learn. And then finally, he'll guide you. That's personal. He'll lead you. He'll direct you. You'll hear David praying like this often in the Psalms. Teach me, O God, to do thy will. Thy spirit is good. Lead me. In these prayers in the Psalms, you'll hear that. How often have we gotten to a place in our life where things are a mess and we come to realize, Lord, you were trying to tell me about that. Lord, you are trying to warn me about that. God, you, you tried to help me with this situation and I didn't listen to what you had to say. Now I'm in a mess because 
I didn't let you instruct me. I didn't let you teach me. I didn't let you guide me. In verse 10 and 11, David said, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord mercy shall come pass him about. Unless you confess every sin, continual sorrow will be your lot in life as a believer. And if you want to be sad, you can be sad for the rest of your life. If you want to be joyful, you can be joyful. The promise of compassing mercy and conscious joy is found in verse number 10. I said at the beginning of the message tonight, my concluding statement, and that is, we can never expect the joy of sins forgiven as long as the task of confession is incomplete. We can be like David, though. Wasn't it a glad day when the Holy Ghost said, David, pick up your pen. I want you to tell the world about how it was before, during, and after. I want you to tell the world how you got your joy back. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You can be glad. You can shout for joy when there's nothing between your soul and the Savior. The last verse is proof positive that what David prayed in Psalm 51 was certainly answered by Psalm 32. It must have been a glad day. I don't know exactly how long that is. The Bible does not reveal it. But I'll tell you this, I really believe that when David laid his pen down, he let out a war hoop like you and I would love to have heard. Tears, no doubt, probably welled up in his eyes and he said, my joy is back again. I certainly needed God to give me that joy back. The many times he wrote, and he's called in the scripture the sweet psalmist of Israel. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. The joy of God's salvation had returned to his life. There's no misery like the misery of sin in the life of a Christian. There's no joy like the joy of God in the heart of a believer that is in communion with him. Let's pray.